There are a number of messages one could extract from the story told by Jesus in our gospel text. Father Paul did a brilliant job this morning at Word and Table exegeting the text better than I will do now, but you, have, you are stuck with me. I want to focus on one simple idea that's embedded in the story, that, uh, that what we do here in our lives, in this life, matters for the life that we will have in eternity. Jesus tells us of this rich guy who lived in a certain way and this poor man named Lazarus who lived in another way. And how they chose to live, Jesus shows us in the story, impacted what happened to them in the afterlife. The message is simple. What we do, our works, they matter. Most of us are children of the Reformation, and we so value the sola gratia, the, the, by grace alone, uh, as a central tenet of the Christian faith. And this echoes Paul's assertion when he makes the statement that we are saved by grace alone, not by works, lest any person would boast, right? But historically, when Luther focuses on sola gratia, by grace alone, he was reacting to a fairly corrupt church in the medieval times that had become corrupt and that they had claimed that the only real conduit of grace was for people was through them, through the works of the church, um, they even offered grace of forgiveness in exchange for donated money, right, in this time. Uh, it's called the sin of simony in the church history. Uh, that's attaching, when you attach spiritual blessing to somebody giving an offering, um, you, you, get, you get it from a guy named Simon in Acts chapter 8, if you want to read about it. Um, the appropriate pushback from Luther was that human beings cannot earn things from God, or that you never want what you've earned from God, right? Uh, but you can't earn anything by acting out or doing things to try to appease God, to make him love you. Because God gives grace, and grace is a free gift, not an earned thing. And so this corrective about human beings not have to earn their salvation was such great news to the saints in the pews in the Reformation, and it still is for us today. But just like anything else, Correctives can quickly become over-correctives. And so since Luther, some have pushed this issue of position of only grace, only by grace alone, to the point where they even suggest that what we do doesn't matter at all, that works don't matter. Um, but that goes against the witness of other huge chunks of Scripture, like, for instance, James 2, when James writes, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is really a dead thing. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his action were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was, calling, he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. 
See, what one does matters because it reveals the influences that one is living under. Um, What we do, according to Jesus and the text that we read in Scripture, sets a trajectory for what is to come to us in the life to come. Jesus presses this point in another gospel text. He says in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's sort of throwing a grenade into the idea you just have to say a prayer to get in. He says, not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, will enter into heaven, but only the person who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What this is saying is that your doings, my doings, they actually matter. What God is after in giving us that Grace alone, right, is the production of good works through our lives that have been graced. We see it in Ephesians 2, uh, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. So we lay that already. But then he says, for we are God's workmanship. In other words, as the result of this grace, God is at work in us, and he's creating in us, in Christ Jesus, he's created us in Christ Jesus for a purpose, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, Christianity is is called the way in the book of Acts in the New Testament. The The way is a label that refers to what happens when graced souls carry out good works. Faith was never just about good beliefs or right thinking or praying that prayer. It's concerned with good works. God is concerned for us to actually be producing positive actions in the world in which we live. Now, there's an important nuance here. Not all works are good, right? Works can be good and not so good, which means our doings need to be discerned. Sometimes things are not as they appear to be. So, for instance, you come into a context like this, and some of us are raising our hands. I mean, hopefully... The persons that are doing that are doing it because we're being informed by a surrender to God. But it might be being done in order for someone to come across to others as holy, that they want to be, that there's a sort of posing that's going on. So just because there's an action, it isn't intrinsically good or bad or less good by just looking at it externally. There has to be a discernment of what's going on inside our hearts Or giving to the needy might be a true love for the poor. But it could be a kind of self-aggrandizing philanthropy, right? (laughs) You're just trying to feel better about yourself because you have so much stuff and you're a greedy person. Um, Frederick Osnaman, he's the founder of St. Vincent de Paul. It's a society whose members worldwide still to this day have uh, places where they have uh, outreaches that they care for the material and spiritual welfare of impoverished people. Listen to what he said. He wrote this, quote, Philanthropy is often a vain woman for whom good actions are like a piece of jewelry and who loves to look at herself in the mirror. Charity, on the other hand, is a tender mother who keeps her eyes fixed on the infant she carries at her breast, who no longer thinks of herself, and who forgets her beauty for her love. End quote. So it's talking about things that we do. They may look exactly the same on the outside, but it might be very different when you look at it in the inside, which is impossible for us to do at people. That's judgment. 
but it should cause us to take pause for ourselves at any rate. Sometimes people are genuine and kind and they're respectful and other times kindness and respect are shown in order to manipulate you and to make matters even more complicated. Sometimes we um, do things for more than one reason. (laughs) So our our actions are a little good and a little not at the same time. For example, I, I, I believe I became a pastor because of obedience to God and my willingness and my longing to obey by caring, obey him by caring for the people of God. But it was also a job I was paid to do. So was I simply obeying God or was I after the money? Right? I mean, being a pastor also gave me a position that garnered respect from others, which was a very nice perk. For most of my career, I was the lead pastor, um, which gave me lots of control of my work life. Also a nice perk. So what was I after? Obedience to God or respect and control? Right? So through the years, I've, I've prayed, Lord, why am I doing this? What's really going on inside me? I mean, would I do this if I weren't paid? Would I be doing this if, if there were no perks? Are the works that I'm doing, are they good? And my conclusion is, I, I think so. <laughs> but only God really knows if that's true, right? I mean, he sees us in ways we don't even see ourselves. I remember the text in 1 Corinthians where Paul says in chapter 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent, Right? It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light uh, what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. My point here is just that the works that God is looking for, they're only good, not just by externals, but when they're motivated by right reasons in the heart. This is why Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see if whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves because we need to bring good works into the world. And in order for them to be good, it's not just the work itself, but the whys behind the work. When we examine and we discover good works and we lean into good works more, it actually ends up impacting the world around us, and the world that is to come. Once we discern our works, that they clear the muster of being good, they actually position us to influence those who are around us. This is what I think is at the heart of what it means to be a carrier of the gospel to the world. It isn't just you getting up in people's faces and telling them what to believe. It isn't you and I arguing about uh, moral standings or different things or fighting people over cultural war stuff. That's not what the gospel is about. I mean, it has implications to that end. But where the gospel starts is it starts in the people who have learned to live well. And so Jesus makes this statement in Matthew 5 when he talks about affecting the world around us. And he says, you are the light of the world. You're a city that's built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone that's in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people that they may see your, what? Good deeds. And what happens as a result? Praise your Father 
who is in heaven. See, notice Jesus didn't say that they will see you're, you're right and they're wrong and they'll praise the Father. Or, or they'll see your moral superiority and praise your Father in heaven. No, he said that they'll see your, your good deeds, your works, and praise your Father in heaven. See, I think the greatest gift the church has to offer the world is the well-lived lives of the saints who do good not just a verbal message about Jesus, but a message communicated through the life of a Christ follower. It was said about Jesus in Hebrews 7 that, that he was one who had become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. <laughs> it, there's a way to live that, that causes Beauty to show up in the world. Mercy to show up in the world. It's indestructible. Kindness and goodness and life spill through a person's life who's like this. And it was, that's what's said of Jesus. The thing about Jesus was Jesus. Not just what he said. I mean, it was, it was how he lived. It was how he noticed people. It was how he loved. It was how he engaged and cared for people. It was how he challenged people. It was how he forgave those who unfairly rejected him and crucified him. I mean, when he preached, often the disciples would come after him and say, we don't understand what you were saying. I mean, when Jesus was preaching, they didn't always get him, right? But they still hung around him. Why? Because it was Jesus, not just a bunch of words coming out of somebody. You and I, if we're, if we're going to, to be the ones who represent God, we need to be the ongoing presence of Jesus in the world. We're the body of Christ. We're called to extend the life that Jesus lived here. When most of us preachers talk about reaching the world, we tend to just think of using words. Witnessing, inviting people to meetings, using the media, books, the internet, whatever, TV. But when Paul talked about reaching others for Christ, he didn't talk about media. He didn't talk about them just running out and using their mouth. He, he spoke of how individual people within the church should live. And in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, you guys, you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, and you are letters that are known and read by everyone. Their lives were letters. Their lives were words in action. Their lives were the incarnation of ideas. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. They were tracks. <laughs> given out, written not with ink on paper, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, which refers to that 10 commandments what God wrote on that, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul is saying, listen, the message to the world is you. The message to the world is you. What God's trying to speak to your kids is you. The way God wants to use your kids and your friends in the world is their lives. I mean, it isn't that we don't speak. We must speak. But the existence of the church is more about living well as living letters than saying lots of words and arguing with people about what they believe. Don't shout me down now because I'm preaching really good. <laughs> words matter, to be sure. But they must be subsumed 
to the way in which we live. This is at the heart of that famous quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Always preach the gospel. Sometimes use words. This is what he meant. The thing we have going for ourselves at Sanctuary in Tulsa is not our programming. It's not our clergy. It's not our music. Oh, it was really good today. Not our building. We're thankful for it. Those are good things. But our best is you. You living well. You are the best asset we have. You are the greatest asset God has for a city, for anyway, for a world. Preaching the gospel is to be mostly about our living, which causes those around us to ask questions as to why are you living that way? You're living differently. You don't react the way others do. You don't kick back the way others do. You have a kindness that others seem to not have, even when we're mean to you. We slap you on the face, and instead of reacting out of the slap, you turn to another place and you react out of a wholeness. What is wrong? What's that about you? Where are you getting that from? First Peter 3, Peter writes to the people, and he says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. One translation says, set apart Christ as your Lord, as in charge. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for why you're like you are, for the hope that you have. In other words, most ministry is supposed to be a response to the question of why you be like you be. But do this, he says, with gentleness and with respect, not correction. The first church that uh, Gail and I were at uh, started in 1980 back in Marshfield, Wisconsin. It's the middle of the state, about 18,000 people. We started with 25 people. Um, the church grew to about 600 people, uh, which was unusual because the largest evangelical church in our town was about 100. So it was a pretty significant thing for its context. But what is surprising to me is about how it grew. Um, when we first got there in 1980, we uh, tried to win the whole town by the first month. We did street ministry. We went door to door. I mean, we always, we got to reach people for Jesus, man. I'm telling them, got them to do the gospel message, give them the tracks to go out and just preach to people on the streets, et cetera, at the doors, at their doors. We did this mass campaign where we spent thousands of dollars we didn't have and, uh, and asked the Lord to do it, which meant I bugged people till they gave me the money. <laughs> but anyway, you know, it was with a good heart. I got it. <laughs> but most of our efforts were a complete failure. And I was, by the time we were there for a couple of years, I was feeling pretty bummed and uh, feeling like nobody really cared. I determined people around here just aren't open to the gospel. Right? And then after being there for a bit, I heard about this event that was going to take place with a Roman Catholic priest who was an evangelist, and he was a healing evangelist. And the town was buzzing. I mean, it's a little town of 18,000 people. The town was buzzing. And they had their first meeting, and I heard about that thousands were going. And I said, no. I said, I got to go see this. So I went to the meeting, to one of the meetings. It was like a whole week. And I get there, and in this little town of Marshfield, Wisconsin, there were 5,000 Roman Catholics at this meeting. And this, he filled up one whole auditorium and it spilled into another 1500 or so spilled into another auditorium it's, it's on you know this is back in 83 maybe and uh so 
he was standing there and he had his, he was a monk-ish guy, he had like a monk's robe thing, huge rosary and his thing. But when he talked, it was like listening to a Pentecostal. And he'd start preaching and talking about Jesus is wonderful. And then he'd start praying in tongues. I'm going, Okay. okay, so I, I and and there was such a sense of God's presence. And when he got to the point where he was trying to get the the folks to respond, he said, "Get on your feet and lift up your hands, and you renounce Satan and let Jesus be the Lord of your life." And they're up there, opening their hearts and lifting their hearts, and people are crying and people are getting prayed for. I mean, it was like a legit deal from my world. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. I mean, I'm sitting there. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, they're not close to the gospel. They're close to you. <laughs> so it's so discouraging. I mean, I thought I was blaming their, their, they didn't want the message of God. They didn't want me. They didn't want us all up in their grill. They didn't know who we were. And something shifted in me. And I began to think, you know, maybe the gospel isn't just purely a message. And, and I started encouraging myself and people to live in a way that gained credibility, that was nonviolent, that didn't just presume everyone was wrong and needed us to correct them. But I started thinking, what, maybe God's working in people's lives and I'm just not acknowledging it. We changed our whole shift. And I said, listen, we just need to trust that if we live well, That'll be the best way to preach the gospel. And if we just stop trying to get people to change from who they are and maybe look at where they are and maybe take more advantage of the fact that they're opening their lives even by going to church and just encourage them in that. Maybe not everyone's supposed to come to our church. I thought everyone was for a while. And I told our folks, just, just be kind to people. And uh, the people you work around, the people you live with, or live around, to love their spouses and their kids, to, to be forgiving, to, to not be too rabid with their opinions, especially political ones, to not be judgmental, but to be merciful and open, to do their work as under the Lord and not just for a paycheck, to be respectful of everyone, and all of a sudden, the church started to grow. Uh, I, I would come up to people in our services, and, and this is a couple of you, a couple of I mean, I would say to them, how did you get here? And internally, I was hoping they would say, because you're a good preacher, Ed Gunger. But more than not, that wasn't the answer. <laughs> a couple of typical stories. One was this lady I came up to. And uh, I said, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Medford, which is like 30 miles. I said, what? how come you're coming here? I mean, we're a 30-mile 30 30 trip for you, 60 miles, coming to church. She said, oh. She said, well, she's my husband and I were, were only been married for about a year. We're getting ready. We're starting to talk divorce already. And... She said, um, she mentioned one of the couples in our church that she, the wife, had her hair, the girl was a hairdresser, the lady that was coming that, that distance was a hairdresser. And she said that, that um, this couple had come to, their, um, to her hairdresser, and, or come to her to get her hair done, and as she was working on her hair, uh, the couple were kind of teasing each other and smiling, kind of laughing, kind of flirty you know, with each other, but just in a sweet way. And she, the hairdresser said, are you God? Did you guys just get married? And they went, Oh, no, we've been married for 12 years. And she goes, What? She goes, How? How come you're so kind to each other? And they said, Well, 
We just think that this is right. We think that putting each other and celebrating each other, loving each other, being kind to each other, chasing each other is just part of what God's design is for marriage. She goes, what church do you go to? So we go down in Marshville, da 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 Next Sunday, she brought her husband down there, and within a few weeks, they were permanent members. They had come to Christ in a new, fresh way. But there, what I'm trying to say is, they didn't, it wasn't a missions trip. They got this. It was a life lived that captured them. And I remember another lady I came up to, and these stories, there was multiples of these stories. Another lady that I came up to, and she was, I had never met her, and I saw she'd been coming for a while, and I came out to her and talked to her a little bit. I said, how did you end up here? So actually, I'm an RN at the hospital here, and I work with so-and-so, one of our church people. And she said, you know, we worked for a real tough boss, and everybody, another tough head RN lady that nobody wanted to be around, but I noticed that Kathleen always wanted to be, you know, joined her team, and I thought they were close friends. And she was so kind when everybody didn't want to be around her. She was so nice and so forgiving. And so I asked her, I said, are you really close with so-and-so, this mean RN head nurse? And Kathleen goes, no, She said, well, what, what, why, do you, why do you always volunteer to be on our team? She goes, oh, she said, she, nobody likes her, and so I think I should just, you know, step up and bring the best and be kind to her just because she's a human being that matters, and she's talking like that. And she said, why do you think that? She said, oh, it's just a part of my faith. And she goes, where do you go to church? <laughs> and sure enough, she told her. She ends up coming to church. Her life gets turned around. See, what I'm trying to suggest to you is, the best way to reach people that are outside of faith or don't think faith matters is not by you arguing with them and presenting a very compelling message. It's by you living in a way that all of a sudden captures people and they start saying, wait a minute, why, why do you act the way you act? See, these folks had become living letters of Christ. And one of the things I love is that most of those people where those things happened never told me the stories. I would just find them out because they're, they were too busy living to be marketing their spirituality. If no one ever asks you about why you live the way you live, maybe you need to up your walk in the Spirit. Maybe we all need to be more intentional about the need to carry our cross where we the cross is that thing that puts to death our selfishness and our impulses to react when we feel like we've been misused or slighted or we're prideful. It kills that stuff. And maybe we need to, to up our loving and our kindness and our attentiveness, our care, our forgiveness. Maybe, maybe we should be less or more thankful, less whiny, and merciful. Maybe we should notice and enjoy the small stuff. Maybe we should stop insisting that we're right. Maybe we should never have an air of superiority, moral superiority. If we live a life under the influence of the Spirit, people will start asking us, what's going on with you? Why are you like this? Then we can, as Peter said, give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. If people are not interested in the gospel around you, it isn't, I would suggest, that they're cold-hearted and not open. It's entirely possible the problem is you. And you 
will have to stand before God about that. That's where our gospel reading from today comes in, about the rich man. And the story is a little scary and a tad threatening. This rich guy in our gospel story ends up in a place that carries a classic image of hell because of how he lived. Jesus is asserting that the rich man's love for those close to him, because he did love them. He loved his family, his friends. He loved his brothers. Remember, he was arguing to say, please let someone go back to them and help them not come here. But Jesus said, when you love people that are just close to you, family, friends, it's not a true gauge of spirituality because everybody loves people close to them. This rich man hadn't concerned himself with those who needed help beyond his immediate circle of loved ones. People in need were invisible to the rich man. Are they to you? One of the ways that people in need are invisible is that when people treat us certain ways, we think it's them reacting to us. When you go and you're getting served by some waitstaff person in a restaurant and they're just a little short with you, the temptation is to think, well, They shouldn't be doing this job. What's wrong with them? Well, maybe they're going through a divorce. Maybe they just found out that their parent has cancer. Maybe they're losing something somewhere, under pressure somewhere, and we are reacting to them as though it's about us. Why? Because people in need tend to be invisible to us. Look where that got the rich man. This story is like a mirror that we can prop up and peek at for a bit. And we have to ask ourselves, what do I look like? Who do I look like in this story? I got nervous this week over that. Again, here's the point. How we live matters. It has an impact on the life of the world to come. The good news is that you're not an accident, that God designed you to matter, but there's a call that echoes and should haunt us. You were created for good works. Are you doing it? It's an idea that's central to the gospel. Amen.